Hi, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here, bringing you the next episode of the China History Podcast. I promise no more horsing around with meaningless banter from your humble narrator. We're going to go right into the Chinese history. In this episode, we're going to look at a day that lives in infamy as one of the darkest hours of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. In April of 1927, after pretending to be BFFs with the CCP, Chiang Kai-shek decides to rub them out and purge the KMT of all communists and whatever leftist sympathizers he could get along the way. Everybody. All these trade unionists, anyone who was out on the streets or involved in communist-sponsored activities, whoever wasn't for the right wing of the KMT, in other words, the time had come to deal with them decisively. Events had transpired between 1925 and 1927 that, at last, was forcing the hand of the sinister Chiang Kai-shek to choose his fate. So, today we focus in on the also known in the Chinese history books as the the four twelve anti-revolutionary incident and the 412 tragedy. Of course, the KMT have other names for this moment in history. They might refer to it as the Qingdang, or purifying the party, or purging the party. In the English history books, this incident is usually known as either the White Terror, the 412 Incident, or the Shanghai Massacre. As the name suggests, it happened on 412, that is, April 12th. 1927 was a year of upheaval in China. The honeymoon, if there ever was one, between the left and right-wing factions of the KMT was definitely coming to a close. And remember, there were Communist Party members who were also active in the KMT as well. So they comprised you know, the left wing, of course. It's more than just Chiang Kai-shek, who doesn't like the CCP and all their rabble-rousing. The elites of Chinese society, as well as the leaders of commerce and industry, they too saw nothing worth liking or admiring of the Communists. The CCP... They were great organizers. They had their way of coming up with a plan, fanning out into the community, using the old Chinese guanxi system to spread the word, get their leaflets out, and pamphlets into the populace. And when they wanted to organize a strike, hey, this was totally no big deal for them. So whether you were a captain of industry or had a membership in any number of guilds or just a small businessman, running a little production operation, the last thing you wanted was someone organizing labor on you. All the organizing going on right under their noses scared the capitalist class down to their bones. And the fate that befell their counterparts in Russia after the Bolsheviks took over was well known to everyone. And by this time, there was plenty of revenge-taking and brutality going on out in the countryside as the communists recruited peasants to their cause and allowed them to turn on their former landlord masters. And these stories, they all made their way back to Shanghai. Everybody knew. And so our little story begins. Let's first look at the events that led up to this defining moment in Chinese history when a line was drawn in the sand and the KMT 
and CCP became blood enemies to the death. Well, they're talking to each other now, of course, in the 21st century, but back in the mid-1920s, and certainly after the Shanghai Massacre, there was no love lost between these two bitter rivals. This was one of the greatest acts of secret betrayal, and the cast of characters involved at the highest level were right out of Hollywood casting. You had, well, three main groups involved. There was Chiang Kai-shek, of course, the military strongman. He was the spider in the center of this web of intrigue. The next group, who was knee-deep in the events leading up to the massacre, was the Shanghai underworld, led by Pakmar Kuang, Huang Jinrong, and his very capable and devious second-in-command, Big Ears Du, Du Yuesheng. The third group who formed this troika was none other than the Song family, who represented the capitalist, banking, and industrial class. We're going to do a whole series of podcasts one day on this amazing family. You'll recall from an earlier podcast, CHP 41, the Qing Dynasty Part 7, one of the early financiers of Sun Yat-sen's mission was a successful businessman and Bible printer and salesman, Charlie Song, Song Jia-shu. He had six kids, four of which went on to carve a rock-solid place for themselves in the annals of modern Chinese history. These four kids were TV Song, Song Zivan, and his three sisters, Ai Ling, Qing Ling, and Mei Ling. These were the three sisters who were immortalized by the saying that one loved money, one loved power, and one loved China. Song Ai Ling, she was the one who loved money, and she was married to the richest guy in China. H.H. Kong, the one who loved power, that was Song Mei Ling, who we know as Madame Jiang Kai-shek, and the one who loved China, of course, was the immortal Song Qingling, who is better known in the West as Madame Sun Yat-sen. So, like the Miller sisters of these times we live in today, the Song sisters, they married rather well. Though I suppose you could say the opposite. In marrying the Song sisters, it opened up a lot of doors for their spouses, uh, Jiang, Sun, and H.H. Kong. This was one fascinating group of characters, and we'll circle back one day and look at them all as each one played no small role in China's history, especially in the first half of the 20th century. So let's look at the dynamic that sort of shaped how things ultimately unfolded. As I mentioned... The communists were extremely effective, and they were doing all this organizing right under the noses of everyone in Shanghai, and this wasn't being too well received by everyone who knew what was in store for them if things got out of hand. So the moneyed class, of which the Song family was part of, they needed to nip this problem in the bud before it spiraled out of control. So these people, they had a lot of money, but they didn't have any muscle power, and that's where Jiang Kai-shek came in. The rich capitalists and everyone who had something to lose if the communists were successful in establishing a Soviet government in Shanghai, they needed a proxy to do their dirty work. And no better proxy existed in the region than the Green Gang, the Qingbang. These were some badass dudes. They controlled all the vice in Shanghai. Opium, booze, 
prostitution, gambling, murder for hire, kidnapping, extortion, you name it. Pakmark Huang was the godfather. He was actually chief of, officially chief of detectives in the French part of the international settlement. He was in cahoots with the French and, you know, made sure all the brothels were filled with prostitutes. There was plenty of opium to go around and nothing got out of control and everyone got fat off the vices of the common man. It was Pakmark Huang's wife who brought Du Yuesheng together with uh, her husband and sort of brought him into the organization. Uh, they may or may not have been having an affair. Don't know that. But anyway, she brought him in. Big ears do. He was one shady, powerful character who lived a life of debauchery, murder, depravity, all of the highest order. And he was a big-time opium addict to boot. So as I said, it was Huang Jinrong's wife, that's Pak Mark Huang, who brought the two kindred spirits together in the first place. And Huang makes Du his main man to handle all the opium logistics in the area. And this is Shanghai in the early 1920s. Okay, let's look at the fabled story about how Big Ears Du, Du Yuesheng, attains supremacy in the Green Gang. Now, you all know it's no secret. It's going to be the Green Gang who does all the heavy lifting for Jiang Kai-shek on April 12th when the massacre is lodged. So this is the backstory about how they sort of became part of the plan and Big Ears Du. He was El Capo de Capos at the time of the massacre, the top dog in the whole organization. And the stories about Big Ears Du are legendary and unforgettable. This guy always traveled with quite an entourage. As I said, he started off as one of Pakmark Huang's boys, and because of a well-earned reputation and a network of fellow criminals and lowlifes he developed over a career, began in his early teens, Big Ears rises fast in the organization. Then one day, 1924, an incident happens that puts him on top and knocks Pakmark Huang down a notch. Now, in 1924, Shanghai is still firmly in the control of the warlords. In this case, the warlord Lu Yongxiang. Now, he got booted out later in the year, but when this incident took place, he's still the man. There was this popular opera house where a Chinese opera was performed. It was, a, you know, just a local night spot. It was called the Gongwu Tai Theater, and it was owned by Pak Mark Huang as a sort of palace for his favorite singer, Lu Lan Chun, to perform in. It was a you know, popular night spot back in the day. So one night, both Lu Xiaojia, the son of the warlord uh, Lu Yongxiang, and Huang Jinrong, they're both in attendance watching the performance. Now, as the story goes, about midway through the performance, for one reason or another, uh, Lu Xiaojia, the warlord's son, he starts booing the singer and creating a big old-fashioned disturbance right inside the theater. And Huang Jinrong, he didn't, he didn't like this, and he had his people make quick work of Lu. He got, you know, pushed and shoved and beat up and, you know, treated shabbily by the thugs under Huang's control. So naturally, the warlord, being the alpha male of the whole pyramid that made up the Shanghai power structure at the time, he had to do something 
to avenge how, you know, his own flesh and blood was treated. After all, he, he controlled the military and he had to show this criminal who still ran things. So the warlord, anxious to restore his prestige, engineers an act of revenge. And he used his henchman, uh, He Feng Lin, the military governor of Shanghai and people in the military, to arrange for Pak Mark Huang to be kidnapped you know, a couple days later in the same theater, watching the same performance. So right there in the middle of it all, Huang is audaciously kidnapped in his own club and bundled away to a secret location and, of course, you know, manhandled. And now the warlord Lu Yongxiang, his face is restored. But Huang Jinrong was no ordinary guy, and this was all just a chess match, pinning one power center against another. And thus enter Du Yuesheng, good old Big Air's Du. Uh, he's going to come to his benefactor's rescue, but at a great price. What happens is... He cuts a deal with Lu Yongxiang that gets Huang sprung from his predicament, but from that point forward, Huang takes a back seat, and Du Yuesheng is now the undisputed king of the Shanghai underworld, stretching the entirety of the Yangtze River Delta region, and then some. But rather than commit suicide by going head-to-head -head against the warlord's military might, Du used his connections to simply buy them off. Du Yuesheng's power base was in a lot of things, but it was in the opium racket that he had his greatest power and influence. He brought together the ten biggest players in the opium business, all Cantonese businessmen, and convinced them to join together and pool their economic resources to buy off not only the military machine of the warlord, uh, Lu Yongxiang, and his henchmen, but also the French as well, because all this was going on in the French concession of the international settlement. And this is where most of the action was as far as uh, the vice business was concerned. This was a stroke of genius, because not only did it lead to the release of Pak Mark Huang, it also forged an alliance between Du's Green Gang, of which he was now the undisputed leader, and the military. So anybody who messed with the Green Gang also messed with the warlord military man, Lu Yongxiang. Everyone along the chain of command got their cut. And that's how everything worked out until the Japanese came along and had to ruin this perfect little world by invading Shanghai. But that's much, much later. For now, Shanghai was the most exciting, sin-filled, commercially bustling city on the planet. Now, this was not lost on a guy like Chiang Kai-shek. From this lesson, he learned the political value of sharing a bed with the big criminal bosses and the usefulness of all those who made up the criminal fringe. For the better part of 1924, there was endless fighting going on in Shanghai. The three big factions slugging it out in China at this time were Lu Yongxiang and his Jiang Suzhi Jiang faction, also known as the Anhui clique. These are the two rich provinces north and south of each other, with Shanghai right smack dab in the middle. Even to this day, Shanghai does not belong to any one province. Shanghai is too big, too rich, and too complicated to belong to a mayor province. Shanghai is one of the four municipalities in China that report directly to the central government in Beijing. The other three are, well, Beijing, of course, and Tianjin. 
with the city of Chongqing in Sichuan province, now a municipality in its own right and no longer a part of Sichuan politically. The second big faction was the Jirli clique, led by Wu Peifu and Sun Chuangfang. The forces of the Jirli clique, they booted Liu out of Shanghai. And sometime in October 24, Liu was defeated, and then he sought refuge in Japan. The third big power center was still the mighty Manchurian warlord, Zhang Zolin. Sirens and danger signals started blasting in his world once he saw the success of his nemesis, the Zhirli faction. So Zhang Zolin, he attacked their forces in the north. But just when it looked like Zhang Zolin was going to go down and defeat to the forces of the Zhirli faction, along comes the Christian warlord Feng Yuxiang to his rescue, and he defeats the forces of the Zhirli clique, and he now occupies Beijing on October 23, 1924. Feng Yuxiang and his extraordinary life will be a topic for a future podcast. So now that this nasty business is all settled, it's safe for Lu Yongxiang to come back from Japan, and that's exactly what he does, and things resume in Shanghai like they did before, and everyone lived well, raking in profits from the extremely lucrative opium business. And this, folks, was the golden age of opium smoking, and the entire opium culture in Shanghai. Now that the French authorities, the military, and the whole police infrastructure were in on the racket, it thrived openly, and it was a very captivating world and filled with every imaginable sin. All seven, plus a few that probably didn't even make it into the Bible. And I guess this is what is so captivating. I read that about one in 12 houses in Shanghai was a brothel at that time. And one out of every 130 residents of Shanghai was a prostitute, and more than half of those worked for the Green Gang. And now, in 1926, 1927, with all these puritanical communists threatening to bring this whole cozy arrangement down, someone had to act. It was in the self-interest of way too many people to allow the communists any modicum of success. As long as they kept all their rabble-rousing to a minimum, these powers that be, these established gentry, military and commercial elites and their minions, the educated class who had money, all these guys, they all had a dog in the race. And it was to their advantage to suppress the communists everywhere they could. So in order to keep everything going the way it was, whatever could diminish the influence of the communists, there was a dedicated loyal, built-in power base with boatloads of money, ready, willing, and able to preserve the established order. So where were we before I sidetracked you all with the story of the rise of Du Yuesheng? Um, Jiang Kai-shek, he launched the Northern Expedition July 9, 1926. The NRA, National Revolutionary Army, they depart Guangdong and head north and then east. They meet with great success and now Rather than go in for the kill and face off against the northern warlords in that ultimate confrontation against the mighty Zhang Zolin, Jiang sets his sights on Shanghai instead. The warlord Sun Chuanfang is now controlling Shanghai, along with, of course, their partner in crime, the Green Gang. The Green Gang had very successfully infiltrated Communist Party cells in and around Shanghai, so they knew totally everything that was going on. 
the KMT and CCP were still, at least outwardly, blood brothers in the KMT. Remember, the Comintern said it was okay to be both a member of the CCP and KMT. And at this point in history, uh, Wang Jingwei was the head of the party. Wang Jingwei, if you recall from the previous episode where we discussed China right after the formation of the CCP in 1921, he was in no way conservative. Wang was a full-blown man-of-the-people type and firmly in the left-wing faction of the KMT. And this, if you were a right-winger of the KMT, of which Chiang Kai-shek was the de facto leader, it, that was you might as well be a living, breathing, full-blown communist. And, and these guys, they had to go. Everyone agreed. And they had to start with Wang Jingwei. Now, if you recall from uh, that podcast, uh, number 52, Jiang had already made an audacious move against the CCP in March of 1926 down in Canton. This really shook things up. And ever since then, the KMT and CCP were always both looking over their shoulders at each other, but with their Russian benefactors controlling the purse strings, they continued to both reluctantly get along with each other. Now, with such quick success in the early phase of the Northern Expedition, Jiang and his conservative KMT right-wing forces saw that the liberal elements of the KMT and, you know, partnering with the CCP, essentially, they were in charge wherever victory over the warlords had been achieved. And this was in Hunan, Wuhan, of course, plus Jiangxi, Fujian on the coast. And this was very disturbing to Jiang Kai-shek. And on January 3rd, 1927, there was a big uprising in Wuhan, organized by who else but the great CCP organizers themselves. This uprising saw the British sort of unceremoniously bounced out of their position of power in Wuhan. And at this great treaty port that went back to the Opium War days, um, the British were forced to bolt and the KMT CCP forces, you know, all hooted and hollered and enjoyed this great symbolic victory over imperialism. Then two months later to the day, on March 3rd, 1927, after two unsuccessful attempts, the communists, along with uh, left-wing KMT elements, launched an uprising that defeated the forces of the warlord Sun Chuangfang in Shanghai. And with this, the nationalist-led army later marched in and took Shanghai. By the way, uh, credited with this successful victory over the Shanghai warlord was one of the greatest men in Chinese modern history, none other than the immortal premier himself, Zhou Enlai. Once he took over towards the end of 1926, he got things in order, and it was under his conductor's baton that the CCP forged this victory in Shanghai. Okay, so now we have the CCP and left-wing KMT people in charge of the big cities around China. You see Zhou Enlai, responsible for engineering this great uh, general strike and uprising, which rid Shanghai of the warlords and put political control of the city in leftist hands. For this brief moment, Zhou was the man in charge. And Shanghai had been a, a nonstop hotbed of organizing labor, and there were all kinds of nasty stuff going on, pitting organized labor against the industrialists and vice versa, and nobody was giving an inch. You know, Wuhan was Wuhan, Changsha, Nanchang, even Nanjing, 
those places, that was one thing. But Shanghai, whoa, that was a totally different chest of tea. This was the commercial center of China. And the profits that oozed, that gushed out of this region, it boggled the mind. So nobody wanted to see this messed with. And now, fresh on the heels of such good success against the warlord Sun Chuanfang, now the CCP, they wanted a bigger cut of the action as far as who was in charge of things in Shanghai. So, at last, in these waning days of March 1927, the time came for Jiang Kai-shek to fish or cut bait. If the KMT lost control of Shanghai, then forget it. There would be no stopping the communists. The stakes were huge at this point. Jiang now controlled Shanghai militarily. Everyone knew there was going to be some sort of bloody showdown. And Stalin was, you know, a thousand, he was thousands of miles away, you know, acting like the puppet master, using all the available intelligence at the time to, you know, decide how to provoke and meddle and, you know, this now very explosive situation. And then, as I mentioned in the last episode, there was an incident uh, on April 6th up in Beijing where Zhang Zolin, the warlord, you know, who's still up char- you know, he's still in charge up in the north. He went and ransacked the Soviet delegation and arrested and murdered 20 Chinese communists, including Li Dazhao. During the lead-up to the date the Shanghai massacre formally began, the foreign powers, namely Japanese and British, had been boldly lashing out at communists and leftists and anyone who fit the category. These were indeed dark times for the Communist Party of China. They were, they were almost done in here. And then at precisely 4 a.m. on the morning of April 12, 1927, there was a blast from a bugle outside a residence in what is today Yueyang Lu, Yueyang Road in Shanghai. This call to arms was matched by sirens that blasted from gunboats anchored offshore from the Bund. That gave the signal to attack. So, who attacked? Uh, this was where the uh, Green Gang had come in. Du Yuesheng had successfully and cleverly legitimized his whole operation by forging this alliance from hell with both the military and political and commercial elements that controlled Shanghai. Everyone needed everyone. It was the perfect symbiotic relationship. Jiang Kai-shek was sworn in blood to work as a brother to Big Ears Do. Their fates were intertwined going way back, and by 1927 you could not see where one began and the other left off. And all along, cementing the bond and fertilizing the relationship were the Songs, uh, particularly Song Ailing, again married to H.H. Kong, the richest man in China at the time, who claimed his ancestry all the way to Kongzi himself, the great sage Confucius. All were beholden to Du Yuesheng and had made all these secret agreements with them because he was willing to do all their dirty work. He was willing to massacre these communists and perceive troublemakers. And a huge sum of money was extorted from the capitalist class to buy them insurance against a potential communist takeover of Shanghai. And a piece of this went to Chiang Kai-shek, but the lion's share went to Du Yuesheng. You know, all this energy and goodwill and best intentions and dreams for China that had finally taken form after the May 4th movement in 1919, it really invigorated 
the nation and the people. But now in the mid-1920s, everything had simply gone too far. You know, the Bolshevik Revolution in October 1917, that changed everything. That was the 9-11 of its day, you know, looking at it from my Amerocentric viewpoint. It changed everything. And when the energy boiled over and liberals wanted a bigger piece of the pie and then suddenly these democratic and socialist ideas that sounded okay back in the day, well, in 1927, uh, wasn't so appealing. So Big Air Du, Du Yuesheng, leader of the Green Gang that controlled all organized crime in the region, just like the brown shirts did in Nazi Germany, he had his men fan out across the city and they knew where Everyone slept, who worked where, where were all the offices, meeting places, secret cells, you name it. Their intel was top-notch. And elaborate plans were crafted that allowed all the goons from the Green Gang to strike everywhere simultaneously, stealthily, and with complete and utter surprise. And the massacre that ensued was carried out with surgical precision. And machine guns blasted away until after lunch that day. And by the end of the day on April 12th, well, no one knows for sure how many died. But let's just say Du Yuesheng thoroughly did his job. By the next morning, barring any unforeseen events, there was no longer any need to fear anything about any communists in Shanghai. For at least the near term. The story of Zhou Enlai's escape from the clutches of the Green Gang goons is one of the great stories of survival. You can imagine being the figurehead leader of the leftist faction in control of Shanghai. You know, Zhou Enlai was a pretty high-profile target, but he cheated death a couple times before he was able to make his getaway. And of course, he lives on to fight another day and then goes on to play a role in shaping world history later on. One of the most amazing world figures from history. Anyway, I won't go into the gory details, but suffice to say, the deed was done. And what followed the massacre on April 12, 1927, was known as the White Terror. And as you could well imagine, there was a great deal of mopping up to do. There were plenty of communists like Zhou Enlai, Mao Zedong, and many others who escaped the terror and regrouped in safer areas. In the aftermath of the massacre, Jiang Kai-shek was the undisputed top guy in China, but the deep, dirty secret was that he was in a way just one of Du Yuesheng's pawns. A new nationalist government was set up in Nanjing, uh, obviously with all this bad blood, <laughs> you know, that put the kibosh on cooperation between the KMT and the communists, as well as with the Soviets. That was that was over for good now. Wang Jingwei, he just sort of evaporated, and with that, so did the Wuhan government that uh, never really caught any traction since the day it was set up. And then in June 1928, the last of the warlords was history, and in December of the previous year, Jiang Kai-shek married Song Mei-ling, Madam Jiang Kai-shek, who incidentally died peacefully in her sleep in New York City eight years ago at the age of 105. And as for all those communist leaders who had all along preached for cooperation with the Soviets and promoting the, the whole idea of this KMT-CCP alliance, they were all disgraced and marginalized and never made a comeback. 
among this group was none other than the CCP co-founder, Chen Duxiu. Probably about 300,000 people at the end of the day got caught up in the violence, the purges, the, the witch hunts. This was all over China, not just in Shanghai, of course. And to put everything in quick perspective, well, the communists who survived the massacre and the white terror, they all escaped to the mountains of Jiangxi and elsewhere to regroup. And then in 1934, we have the Long March, and then Japan invades China, and then we have World War II, followed by the Chinese Civil War, and then ultimately the founding of the CCP, and then the Beijing Olympics. And I urge you all, if you're interested, to hear more about the details about what transpired in China between liberation in 1949 and the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Join me next week, if you dare, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from a baking hot, bone dry Claremont, California. It's 104 degrees outside, folks. Yeah, you heard that right. 40 Celsius. Wherever you are, I hope you're all keeping cool and enjoying the last weeks of the summer of 2011. Take care, all. See you next week.